Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audiobook Club is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Art of Storytelling, which provides tools to help everyone enhance their own storytelling skills. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash book club. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of Wild by Cheryl Strade. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here at Slate's New York recording studio this month. Joining me right here is Parl Segel, who's an editor at the New York Times Book Review. Hello, Parl. Hey, Dan. Welcome. And joining us from Washington is a brand new addition to our audiobook club roster, Slate Assistant Editor Katie Waldman. Hey, Katie. Hey. So, as always with the audiobook club, we will be talking about all the various plot twists and turns and the momentous events of Cheryl Strayed's life as recounted in Wild. So, if you are a person who doesn't want to be spoiled for a book before you read it, go read the book and then come back and listen to us. If you don't care about that stuff, then just continue listening. Pay no mind. Wild is Cheryl Strayed's best-selling memoir of her 100 days spent hiking the Pacific Crest Trail in California and Oregon. She was 26 in 1995 and trying to piece her life back together after it fell apart in the wake of her mother's death from cancer. She's ill-prepared for the rigors of a long backpacking journey, but while the trail takes six of her toenails, it gives her back some ineffable sense of herself. The film version of Wild, starring Reese Witherspoon, comes out this fall, and I can only hope it does not skimp on the bleeding foot shots. <laughs> but for now, we're talking about the memoir. Today, I want to talk with you guys about the indelible scenes that pepper this book, about the way that Cheryl Strayed folds in the stories of her past into this concurrent story of hiking the trail, and about, of course, Cheryl Strayed's seaside honey fantasia with a hot Wilco fan. <laughs> But first, let's talk about this 1,000-mile hike and how Strayed makes both its beauty and awfulness so vivid. She is pretty ruthless with herself about how unprepared she really was for this trail. So to start out, Parl and Katie, what is your favorite Cheryl Strayed fucking blows it on the Pacific Crest Trail moment? Mine is when she yells moose at a bull. That's my favorite moment. What about you guys? What did you like the best? I think for me, the ongoing drama of her boots yeah. oh my is, gosh, yes. is just amazing. So she gets these fancy hiking boots from 
REI. And from the beginning, she's, you know, in a tremendous amount of pain. Her feet just become hamburger, essentially. And almost every person she meets on the trail says, you know, I think your boots are too small. And it's just this ongoing thing. Again and again, people keep telling her she keeps losing toenails. She's hobbling along in excruciating amounts of pain. And guess what? Her boots are too small. Her boots are too small. And uh, so eventually she, you know, orders another pair. But I think this is my favorite detail just because I don't know if you, Dan or Katie, if you've ever looked at reader book reviews of Wild on outdoor backpacking sites. I have not. So I did that this morning and I (laughs) highly recommend it because people love this book, but they're also in shock. So like these experienced backpackers will just paragraphs upon paragraphs about like the boots. How can we keep this from happening? Like it's, Is it's, there some like preemptive lawsuit we can file against REI <laughs> so that whoever sold her those boots in 1995 can never we'll work again? Price. Yeah, no, but that was just, I, I mean, I love it. Such a strange reversal of Cinderella almost. That boot makes an appearance on the cover. I don't know if it's the boot, but a boot makes an appearance on the cover that ends up being such a part of her life. And in fact, the opening of the book is this amazing yeah. scene where one of those two, two small boots hurdles off a cliff accidentally, but uh, very, very very symbolically, potently. Katie, what about you? What was your favorite scene of Cheryl Strayed, not a good hiker? I actually want to do a postscript to the boot foible because there is actually a point after her boots topple off the edge of the cliff where she uses duct tape to create little booties. And so she does, I don't know how many miles, like 20 miles in these Duct tape yeah. boots. Duct tapes attached to crappy athletic sandals. Yeah. Yes. That were already like falling apart. Yeah. Yes. People ask her, they're like, what the hell is on your feet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's pretty amazing and pretty ruthless, I think, and interesting as a writerly construction, the way that she is very unsparing mm-hmm. about how poorly prepared she was for this. And a lot of that manifests itself in the monster, right? That backpack that she carries around. One of the the really most memorable scenes, one that I feel quite certain will be like great in the movie, in fact, is that scene where she's in the hotel room on the first morning of her hike and she's like procrastinated and is never like she's never really packed her bag right before and never practiced hiking with a bag, never really hiked in those boots. And so the morning of what's supposed to be her first day on the Pacific Crest Trail, she loads everything into her backpack and she realizes it doesn't all fit. So she has to strap a bunch of it to the outside of it. And she realizes she hasn't even done her water yet. So she has to fill up like a two and a half gallon gallon jug of water and attach that. And then after all that is done, she straps on the backpack and she cannot even physically lift it up. She literally cannot pick it up off the ground, this thing that she's supposed to carry 1,000 miles up to Oregon. And so like that scene starts off this long battle she has with the backpack, which she eventually names the monster. And at one point, she manages to divest herself of a lot of the stuff that's in it. But it still is this thing. It becomes part of her over the course of this, and it wears her skin down. And did you guys get the sense ever that, as I worried sometimes that I would, that she at some point was like was playing the role of inexperienced and competent Cheryl Strait hiker for like beyond how inexperienced and bad at it she actually was? Was she overplaying it? Was she playing it for laughs? Or did you really get the sense that this was the person that she was? And honestly, like it was lucky to survive this trip. I was with her for the entire narrative of the trail. And I think that for me, some of the playing it for laughs worked in her favor. 
because it lightened, I think, what could be sort of at points what would, what could feel like sort of heavy-handed symbolism, right? right? This mm-hmm. like huge thing she's carrying around on her back, and it's the monster, and it's supposed to symbolize all of the, you know, the tragedies she'd suffered before she decided to walk on the trail of the death of her mother, the dissolution of her marriage, the sort of spate of affairs she'd had, the sort of dabbling with heroin, all of this stuff that she was walking away from. But I think in making it the monster, in making us see it so vividly, and, you know, she's this sort of like June bug who can't get up and is a sprawl <laughs> on the path, it's sort of like it, it leavens everything, or at least it did it for me a little bit, you know, and it allows her to sort of play and sort of gather these many strands, you know, the comic, you know, the the painful, the sort of tragic, in a very neat way. Um, too neat? I don't know. But In, in a 85-pound package right. that she wore upon her back. Yeah, it's the same thing with the boot also, right? This boot, which when it goes tumbling into the canopy of trees and she's clutching the remaining one to her chest. And this is just how the book begins. And you can see how quickly this writer can do all these different things at one time. And she's clutching this boot and it's an orphan. She talks about how she's an orphan because her parents have died. This boot is a stray. She talks about this name, Cheryl Strayed, she's chosen for herself. And so we see all of these melodies that we're going to hear in the book very quickly and sort of tidily. I like that. Like that opening scene is like a little mini overture for all these different melodies that we'll be hearing. Very definitely done. I agree with you about how effectively she inhabits that ingenue, I don't know what I'm doing role. And especially, you know, she has this very hard scrabble upbringing she grew up without running water, right? Wow. And um, in some backwoods cabin that she built with her family. And so, like, it is very possible that she is more prepared to make this hike than she's letting on. But I think that she allows us into her head and she feels that desperately insecure, confronting monster that morning. So even if she, even if she is actually not as completely unprepared as she seems, or she seems to think she is, um, it's effective to go inside her head for a moment. So let's talk a little bit then about some of the other the literary choices that she makes. And, and one of those, I think, has a lot to do with the voice in this book, the way that Strayed presents herself and presents not only her physical toil, the physical toil of going up and down the trail, but all the sort of emotional rigor that she puts herself through both before the hike and during it. What did you guys think of that voice and did it ever feel overwrought to you? No, actually, strangely. Like I kept thinking, this is not going to work on me. This is going to be too sentimental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to feel wretched, like trapped in this stupid yeah. journey. And actually, I was struck by how sort of calm and poised and not dramatic some of it was. Like it felt very trenchant and it felt very profound, but it didn't feel like it was trying very hard. And so I was really impressed by, I mean, she has moments of beautiful language, but it's not labored over. I mean, I think there are a number of of voices she plays with in the book as well. And I was kind of reminded about the conversation you guys had last time about Roxanne Gay's book, Bad Feminist. And Cheryl Strait, of course, you know, also comes out of the rumpus, the online literary website. And they both write about, you know, Roxanne Gay and Cheryl Strait both write about, you know, disordered eating. They write about sexual assaults. They write about really difficult stuff. But they're such intimate writers and you do feel like you know them. I think, Katie, last time you said that you felt like Roxanne is your friend, you know, and like even the impulse to call them by their first names is something Mm -hmm. that like you'll see on Amazon reviews and stuff like that. So there is that like that immediacy, that intimacy, that sharing. 
But I think like you, I didn't find it cloying. And, you know, I, I find most things cloying. I find everything. Like, <laughs> but I think some of it was just because it's her writing, especially when she's on the trail, is just so specific. It's so granular. It's so deeply, you know, observing. She's just staring at the trail. She's looking at every rattlesnake that passes, every bunch of stones. She has to be attentive. And I think that that's what saves a lot of this or keeps this book from sort of, you know, getting too close to sort of like a treacly sentimentality or self-pity, mm. you know, which it would have been, you know, could have tumbled into it like that boot. I would like to sound a dissenting note on oh. this matter. I agree, Parl, that mm. there were many times on the trail when her attention to detail really carried this book. I'm, like, I think back, I will probably never forget the, the very simple description of a llama as smelling like burlap yeah. and morning breath. Like, that is a, <laughs> that's a great note. And she's really good at writing about nature. She did a, really an amazingly good job of making a thousand miles of basically undifferentiated trail and yeah. landscape, like, seem very vivid and differentiated in my mind. I really now have a real sense of how the High Sierras look different from the High Cascades and how the trail in Oregon is different from the trail in Southern California. Like, I get that now. But at some point in this book, I lost count of the number of times that she told me that she was wrecked or destroyed or ruined or shattered or whatever. And so there's like a section I want to read that I thought really pointed to this. What I felt was like a sort of an over-reliance on over-dramatization of her own emotional state. And I understand that 22 to 26 year olds who have horrible things like this happen to them do feel this way but it's it just in the at some point started to feel to me like i get it like shit was bad so here's a section on page 55 it's a scene between her and her ex-husband paul when they're not quite exes yet, they're still sort of separated, or maybe they have become exes at this point, but he drives to Portland because she's been dabbling in heroin, and he's very worried about her. And he picks her up and drives her back to Minnesota. And this is how she characterizes just that drive back. I sat in the passenger seat as we drove across the country, feeling my real life present but unattainable. Paul and I fought and cried and shook the car with our rage. We were monstrous in our cruelty, and then we talked kindly afterward, shocked at each other and ourselves. We decided that we would get divorced and then that we would not. I hated him and I loved him. With him I felt trapped, branded, held, and beloved, like a daughter. And I wrote in my notes like this, too much, too much. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have been too much if it had stood in isolation, but there was scene after scene. Mm -hmm. Like I made a note on page 275. She refers to herself in two paragraphs away from each other as first shattered, then demolished, and then on the next page, ruined. And this is like when she's good at hiking. Yes, yes, yes. But I have to disagree with you on this. Because, disagree okay, with me. Yes, yes. Because this, and this is something actually I, I liked, because she uses the word shattered once. A mm -hmm. cheeseburger shatters her. Mm -hmm. She's mm -hmm. demolished by the sight of a lemon snapple. Yes. Right? So I Correct. mean, some of, this, some of that language is heightened and it's ironic and she's just describing. Yeah, but it's not ironic no, no, no. at all. No, no, no. But I think, that, I think she's being playful there. I think the issue... I mean, this is the other voice in the book, right? Like, this is not the nature writing voice in the book. But the book, when she talks emotionally, and a lot of the times when she talks prescriptively. Right. And that is different. And that I feel, again, I have some reservations about that. And in part, we're also talking about a memoir that was written almost 20 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. Right? And so as I was reading it, and I, I had some questions about Paul. I had some questions even about the death of the mother scenes that I expected to find affecting. And sometimes I did. And sometimes I found them lacking. And I was trying to figure out why she sometimes resorts to summary and sort of like summaries of like very sort of 
bright, hot, vivid emotions that we don't really see her. She's just reporting them. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we shook the car with our rage. Right. But, but, but you don't really believe it in your bones. It doesn't feel authentic in that way. You know, there's something it can feel canned. It can feel sort of I feel like I wonder if the time that has passed is part of it. You know, that she's sort of sort of filling in these these sort of holes so we can get to the main story, which is the trail and sort of justifying why she's on the trail, justifying everything that she's left, as opposed to sort of really living through and writing those sections. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, you have to work really hard when you're a writer to recapture that intensity of emotion. And it felt to me sometimes like she was working too hard. But Katie, what do you think? So I actually did not mind the extreme language at all when it was talking about the trail itself because I completely believed it. And I thought it was really effective to see her laid low by something as small and every day as a cheeseburger. And hilarious. Yeah, exactly. Like it seemed like a device and I appreciated that. But yeah, with the relationships, with the emotions before she gets to the trail, those are things sort of more within our ken as readers who are not backpackers and hikers. And so it did seem a little bit, I guess, dramatic is what she's going for, Mm. but dramatic without earning it Mm. necessarily. The one scene that didn't feel that way from her past to me is that really brutal scene with the horse. Oh, my God. I can't even talk about that scene. You're on your own. Okay. (laughs) Parle's going to leave the room for a second while Katie and I talk about the horse. But (laughs) So that is a scene where she doesn't do, I think, Parle, what you talk about in other places. She doesn't shy away. She doesn't summarize. She really brutally gets down to the nitty-gritty of the work of killing this horse, which it turns out is a lot harder than you might think it is to shoot a horse and kill it. And this is her mother's horse. Her mother's horse. After her mother died. Who her mother loved, who is the same color, it is notably pointed out, as the fox that she witnesses on the trail who reminds her of her mother, who in fact when it runs away she shouts mom after it. There's a lot of weight embedded in this scene, but that scene really pays it off in a very visceral way. And it made me wish that fewer scenes went to that sort of summarizey voice, as I think Parl really accurately described it. I realized something as I was rereading Wild for this. Cheryl Strayed's first book was a novel called Torch. Mm-hmm. And Torch, which I haven't read, but you know, just reading the descriptions, is the story of a woman who dies very young, like Cheryl Strayed's mother, and what sort of happens to her children and how they sort of skitter away from each other. And it does feel like it has certain autobiographical elements. So as I was reading Wilde and reading the sections of the mother, I, I wondered if some of that immediate emotional energy had been used in the novel, you know? And so now we're getting a sort of recap and... But, you know, some of that real blood and like that real tough stuff was there because actually this book took me back to Megan O'Rourke's book, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. The Long Goodbye. Right. And uh, which is like a very blow by blow look of, you know, look at losing your mother. And there's similar sort of themes and similar searches. And maybe actually we can talk about, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but how many different books this is. Yeah. And one, did you feel that? Yeah, definitely. Let's indeed talk about that after a word from our sponsor. <laughs> we are very happy to let you know that the Audiobook Club is now sponsored by The Great Courses. As readers of the Audiobook Club know, the desire to learn does not stop after college. ABC listeners over the years have learned from us and along with us about life in India, about Scientology, about modern feminism, about being a handsome Norwegian writer who just can't get his shit together. And we've enjoyed learning about those things. And The Great Courses 
feeds that desire to keep learning. It feeds it through engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors on over 500 topics, including history, science, photography. And we are very excited to let you know that the Audiobook Club is being sponsored by their course on the art of storytelling, which is really a great fit for people who listen to this podcast because, you know, ABC listeners really love great stories. And the art of storytelling helps you learn to tell stories from life, not unlike the kinds of stories that Charles Strait is telling right in this book. This course provides insights into the history of telling stories. It uncovers the hidden meaning and psychology behind different types of stories. And it also provides really practical tools for how you tell a story right down to how to hold your body, how to develop a character, how to build a character arc, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It's taught by Hannah Harvey, who has a PhD from my alma mater at UNC in communication studies and performance studies. She's a really engaging lecturer. She's fun to watch. She's a great storyteller herself. And a lot of what you get in these videos or in the audio version are her stories. And you can watch or listen to this course anytime, anywhere. And of course, Unlike in college, there are no exams. So here's our special offer for the great courses. We have a special offer for listeners of the Audiobook Club. You can order this specific course, The Art of Storytelling, and get 80% off the original price for a limited time. So give it a try. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash book club. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash book club, and you will get 80% off The Art of Storytelling, and you can give it a try. Once again, please use our code thegreatcourses.com slash book club because we get credit for it. We know that you have come to them through our ad and they will keep advertising with us because we're really proud to be associated with them and really glad that they are sponsoring this podcast. Thegreatcourses.com slash book club. All right, back to our discussion. So let's talk about all the different books that this is. So it's a hiking memoir, both an inspirational and cautionary story for people like me who might think it might be fun to hike a trail someday. What other book is it? It's a grief memoir. Um, I mean, it's also like really hard to talk about this book not in sociological terms, right? Like I'm always trying to parse why it was the phenomenon it was. Right. I think one of the things that I've sort of landed upon is that it's also like a very archetypal old story, this idea of someone mm. going into the woods for purification and penance, you know, self-exile. Like it's it's biblical. It's older than the Bible. It's like, there's stories like this in Hinduism. There's even, you know, a trace of this in some of the Nick Adams stories in Hemingway. You know, after you suffer great horror, you go and you sit by the stream and there's the glory of baked beans and mm-hmm. coffee made on your camp stove. And I think it's also even like a portrait of the artist as a young woman, because we do get the sense of, you know, she's carrying these books around that are very precious to her. She knows she wants to be a writer. She's known since she was 19. So you get a sense of her sort of Maybe we don't see her like developing a voice necessarily, but certainly like a set of influences, a set of essential questions. I would also add that it's a pilgrimage, sort mm-hmm. of in a, mm-hmm. I mean, the Canterbury tale style pilgrimage with some of the bodiness yeah. and definitely a coming of age tale. And also just that there are actual literal other books embedded in this book. She brings her reading along with her. She has these pretty resonant titles. I thought actually these details were almost too perfectly chosen. (laughs) Um, As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner about, you know, carting the body of a mother across the American country. Although Um, I will say that I bought it. Like I bought that because she seemed like exactly the kind of 26-year-old who would have like not ever read her guidebook, but would have perfectly chosen the exact book she wants to have along with her on every part of the trail. Yes. Right? That does seem like exactly her. I actually want to read um, 
So there's this pretty spectacular scene on her first day on the trail. It turns out she can't lift her bag and it's horrible and hot and she drinks all her water like really fast and she doesn't know what she's doing and she's filled with despair. And on the end of that first day, she stands like on a cliff overlooking California and she reads an Adrienne Rich poem called Power. And she says she reads it over and over and over again. But the poem itself is not reprinted in the book. And when I came back to it, I was surprised by it, I think, a little bit. So I want to actually just read it for listeners so you guys can know what it was that Cheryl Strait was announcing to the wilderness out there in 1995. Living in the earth deposits of our history, today a backhoe divulged out of a crumbling flank of earth, one bottle, amber, perfect, a hundred-year-old cure for fever or melancholy, a tonic for living on this earth in the winters of this climate. Today I was reading about Marie Curie, she must have known she suffered from radiation sickness, her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts on her eyes, the cracked and separating skin of her finger ends, till she could no longer hold a test tube or a pencil. She died, a famous woman, denying her wounds. Denying her wounds came from the same source as her power. So that's a pretty thematically perfect poem, 26-year-old mm. Cheryl Strayed. Nice job. <laughs> you nailed that one. Right down to the separating skin of her finger ends, which yeah. closely resemble six of your toes by um, the end of this hike. Sure. And, the, and her eyes, too, which are like the corneas of her oh mother, who is yeah. the other sort of, you know, I mean – chemotherapy. I'm, I can't remember if she actually got chemotherapy. She, she never did. No, she, she died too oh, fast. Oh. That's right. Yeah. She gave away her corneas. Yeah. As you say, when she died and that was the only, she wanted to give away all her organs, but that yeah. was the only part she gave away. But so did Cheryl Strade's wounds come from the same source as her power? Does her power come from the same source as her wounds? I guess to put it the other way, is that the argument of this book? It sort of seems like maybe it is, right? If you view it as as a portrait of the artist as a young woman, then yes, that her pain gave her, in the end, the strength that she needed to go on, to become a real person, a real adult, to collect her life, to write this book that we are reading right here. And I think that that ties in to this thing in the book and that she said in interviews about not wanting this book to be a redemption narrative. Mm -hmm. And we see this at one point, she's on a beach somewhere and she's writing her ex-husband's name in the sand and she's telling herself, I'm never going to do this again. You know, what if I did nothing wrong? You know, what if there was nothing to forgive? What if, you know... Even though I did horrible even things. Though I did what horrible if there's things, nothing to right. forgive? Right. And like the heroin and the affairs and all of this, what if it brought me here? And it's, I, I think it, you know, it, it sort of, you know, resonates with that idea that our pain is connected to our, our talents and our gifts. So... But I think what's what's interesting to me is actually I'm, I'm lazy and did not look up that poem. So <laughs> you were too busy reading reviews on backpacking sites. God, I know. <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting to me is that, again, at this idea of like the portrait of the artist as a young woman or, or somebody finding her voice, how not similar the voices, but how similar they are in aim, you know? And just again, like thinking about how simply this book is written in certain ways, right? Like the mm. language is very, it's, you know, as Katie said, it can be very beautiful at points, but it's very you know, simple and, and clear and accessible and how, you know, you get this feeling from Cheryl Stray that she wants this book to be useful to people. Like she wants yeah. all of her writing to serve a purpose, to serve people. She and, is an advice columnist in her other exactly, life. Exactly, right? Yeah. right. And then you think about Adrienne Rich and how Adrienne Rich conceived of poetry, right? And th they were these political acts. Mm. Um, I read this interview with her when she talks about her brother, who's this tiny character in the book, and her brother didn't graduate from high school. And she said that when she started writing, she wanted to write 
things that he could understand, things mm-hmm. that very intelligent people, but who were not, you know, educated or not book smart, could get. People and, who love James Michener but don't necessarily. Right, which is part right. of the book. Yeah. And it's this idea, and I think it's something that she herself, as this book became a phenomenon, I think also had to contend with, right? Like commercial success versus literary success, all of these things that in this book, I think, um, I think she's aware of it, mm-hmm. you know, and she's made a choice. It's interesting too. I mean, when you were talking about how this book contains multiple books, for me, it wasn't so much that it was a lot of books folded into one book, but that it was sort of one story proceeding along multiple tracks at once. So there's sort of the concrete level at which she's traversing these mountains and she's in nature and taking it tree by tree, step by step. And then there's sort of the narrative unfolding on an allegorical level where there are sort of life lessons woven in. And a journey is always like an emotional or spiritual journey. And I think there's even that moment where she's bequeathed a sacred Rasta shirt and it's because she talks to animal spirits or something, sort of the genius of this book is that you can kind of take it at whatever level you want to at any given moment. And she is incredibly effective at allowing those threads to merge when she needs them to for effect. Like right before the horse scene, I noticed she talks about trying to find her way in the dark. And she says at some point she just sort of surrenders to just total physical awareness of her surroundings and it reminds her of riding a horse Mm -hmm. and that concrete physical experience like brings in the emotional recollection of lady and that terrible death scene and it just seems like a really really sharp Mm -hmm. and skillful weaving together of the symbolic and the sort of day-to-day and it has those scenes but then it also has like the kinds of blunt symbolic moments that if you hadn't gone through 250 pages of this journey with her, yeah. if you like just read them in an essay mm-hmm. in a magazine, you'd be like, oh, my God, Jesus. So mm. there's a section on page 273 that I really noted. It's when she has gotten to Crater Lake in Oregon. Yes. And she is sitting there looking at it. And here's the scene. It's on page 273. Something made me feel as if I'd arrived. Like that blue water was telling me something I'd walked all this way to know. This was once Mazama, that's the name of the mountain that turned into Crater Lake, I kept reminding myself. This was once a mountain that stood nearly 12,000 feet tall and then had its heart removed. This was once a wasteland of lava and pumice and ash. This was once an empty bowl that took hundreds of years to fill. But hard as I tried, I couldn't see them in my mind's eye. Not the mountain or the wasteland or the empty bowl. They simply were not there anymore. There was only the stillness and silence of that water, what a mountain and a wasteland and an empty bowl turned into after the healing began. So that is a very Mm -hmm. step by step Mm -hmm. metaphor for dummies style version of explaining this book and turning Crater Lake into the deepest metaphor in the United States and among the deepest metaphors in the world. But because we have gone along on this journey with her, I bought it as much as this language in this book sometimes bothered me. The experience of reading it sort of reminded me of her experience of walking the trail. Like it was really hard at first for me sometimes and I was worried I wouldn't Mm -hmm. make it through. But the sort of day-to-day toil and beauty put together of getting through this book sort of brutalized me enough that by the end, (laughs) I was like emotionally available to these moments. I was willing to accept these moments that I might not have accepted in another book. Well, I think that this is the thing. Like it's not, you know, it's not a subtle book. 
No, something about those black and toenails (laughs) dropping off. I mean, again, going back to that first line, she's got a great first line. It goes, the trees were tall, but I was taller. It's all there. Like, she's showing you, like, this idea of surmounting nature. You get a little bit of her swagger. You get a little bit of, like, she gives you everything you will ever need to read this book. Like, there's nothing to really puzzle out. And I think that the pleasure in it isn't in that kind of, you know, readerly pleasure, but it's more sort of appreciating, as Katie pointed out, how cannily it's put together, mm-hmm. you know, how she can anticipate you, how, I mean, and this is something that, and I don't think that this will be like a comparison she would especially like, but in in this way, she's a, she's a little bit like Elizabeth Gilbert, mm-hmm. you know, who she, she just has that sense of like, okay, now you're thinking I'm being self-indulgent or too dramatic and she will undercut herself and she'll be like, yes, yes. I'm moaning or here's my blackened toenail. And she has that sort of awareness of the reader and of, I mean, maybe not always, maybe not Dan. But I think I'm more cynical than even she could have anticipated. <laughs> she, she, yeah, but I think generally speaking, she can pivot really in these interesting quick ways. Yeah. And also just in the same way that as a hiker, she does the work. Mm. She goes through all the stuff. She's meticulous. I mean, maybe not in the packing stage where she's not doing her research. But once she gets there, she has so many moments where she says, I surveyed my options. There was one option. Yeah. I took it. Like I went forward. Yeah. And in that same way, I think as a writer, she does the work. Yeah. Like as a writer, you have to work incredibly hard to make these kind of radical, abstract, metaphoric statements at the end, meaningful. That takes a lot of sort of preparation. And she really does it. And I admired that a lot. And I think there's also a sense for me that maybe the book is not subtle, but the life that she's talking about in this book is also not subtle. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. It's incredibly immediate. Like she, I think, you know, she's this, you know, like, I think, Katie, you, you, you mentioned this earlier, but like there's always just one thing to do. Right. And it's the thing she doesn't want to do. Right. So you can't I've, drink a martini. You can't like run away from, oh, you're about to I have this. that passage. Yeah, because I, I really noted that passage yeah. too. The thing about, it's on page 69. The thing about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, the thing that was so profound to me that summer, and yet also, like most things, so very simple, was how few choices I had and how often I had to do the thing I least wanted to do. How there was no escape or denial, no numbing it down with a martini or covering it up with a roll in the hay. And... That's like a pretty good lesson for a writer too, right? If you are writing a memoir like this and you are trying to figure out, well, do I let myself off easy or do I tell this story? Mm. Do I allude to the time that we had to shoot that horse six times to kill it or do I write it? You write it, right? The job of any writer usually is to make it as hard on your characters as you possibly can. And if you're a memoirist, that job doesn't change necessarily. You need to tell those stories that are hard to tell, even if that's the least appealing option at the time. And that's one of the real strengths of this book is that she is willing to do that. So I want to talk about a couple more things, including the upcoming movie, which I think will be fun to gab about a little bit. But first, I I want to ask you guys about all those other people she met on the trail, hardly any of whom we have even mentioned here. And they mean a lot to her, obviously, right? There's Doug, who she really befriends, who later, who we find out at the end of the book, died in a, like a kite sailing accident or something in New Zealand. There's other people from her past, but, and then there's Wilco guy. I can't even remember his name. Jonathan. Jonathan, the hot Wilco fan. This is in an age when it was still possible to be a hot Wilco fan. (laughs) The guy in the band who doesn't ask her a single thing about herself. Yes. And who is not a very good conversationalist, but who is really, really good in bed. So this scene, their seaside honey Fantasia, it made me like want to die. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like in a bad way no in I a bad way mean, not yeah, like yeah. it did not like not in a petite more like an actual <laughs> more i'm sure it actually happened to her mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it nevertheless seemed like a scene inserted 
by an editor who was like, well, we got to have a sex scene. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was like over the top, like on a beach with honey, for God's sake. Like, and I guess I don't really know what my objection to it is because it's a (laughs) memoir and and it happened. And obviously it was, it was a heightened experience among a summer full of heightened experiences. But all the same, it was, it felt like another totally different book that I was not enjoying. But did that scene work for you guys? Is it just because I'm a dude? I think for me, it just became a completely contained experience with what she was demonstrating that it's possible to be very much in the moment and feel that something is meaningful as it's happening and then to put it in a box and have it mean absolutely nothing two minutes later. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure what the point of making that argument is, but I think it has something to do with her philosophy of just let it be. Like this meaningful thing happened. It doesn't have real repercussions for the rest of my life. And yet here it is. Mm-hmm. What about you, Pearl? I so dislike the phrase honey fantasia. So Seaside I mean, honey fantasia. Yeah, so I really like, but I'm getting past that. And I actually think you're wrong, though. But I, I think that I don't think this was inserted by an editor. I think, I'm sure it wasn't. But, but you know, I, I feel like it does reach into the book. It does come out of this character who we've gotten to know. And she's somebody who's really frank about her appetite. And she's kind of sexy at one point. You know, she refers to herself as a horny old bastard. You know, right. she's and she makes a point of telling us she's like, I haven't masturbated on the trail. Like she's this like lusty libidinous kind of person. And like, I wonder if your objection is to the language, actually. You know, I feel it, like... That's it, definitely part of right, it. Right. Yes. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like if it was, a you know, a little bit pulled back, a little bit more sort of less honey was involved, perhaps mm-hmm. you would have less of a problem. I mean, it also has this moment, right, where she's been carrying this pack around for 100 days or however many days at this point, And it's worn away. It's abraded all the skin on her hips mm-hmm. and her back. And she's very sh- ashamed. And she's getting undressed in front of this guy and she doesn't want him to see it. And he sort of kisses her there and sort of like – and it's sort of like you get the sense in the book that she's somebody who is both – she has this interesting relationship to her own power as a woman. And she's got funny ideas about femininity or she did when she was younger. And she writes about them with a certain degree of patience and fondness, you know, about really liking her sexual power, about feeling resentful when she had to mask it to be one of the guys on the trail, you know. Mm-hmm. So you – did feel like, even if I objected to like the vast quantities of honey, but <laughs> I felt like that scene did something for me because, you know, she, she was young and she was sort of, you know, yeah, sort of trying to negotiate all these different sides of herself, like the grieving side, the sort of, you know, sexual side, all of these things together. So, I mean, I didn't have a huge problem with it. To me, it also, in a weird way, grew out of that earlier scene where she meets the Swiss tourist, Susanna, who insists on rubbing her feet. Oh, yeah. And she, you know, her feet are so battered and broken up. And she says, oh, I really, I don't want you to look at my feet. I don't want you to touch my feet. But this woman insists. And it's sort of like this strange religious Mm -hmm. exchange and experience. And I just thought that in a weird way, the two episodes were linked. I wasn't sure if she meant anything by that. So what do you guys think about Reese Witherspoon in this part? Can you see her, even though she's manifestly too old for this role? I mean, on a superficial level, she's plucky. She's blonde. (laughs) She's game. She is game. Yeah. She's totally game. I think it's brilliant. Like, for me, Reese Witherspoon will always and forever be Tracy Flick. Right. You know? And Mm. from election. And and this is the thing about Cheryl Strait is that I I felt this about her character in the book. She wants it all. She wants to do things right. She wants to like live life to the hilt. She want, you know, she's ambitious and she's sort of hungry in that kind of way. And she is plucky and she is that sort of, um, but all of this with this very sort of like blonde, inoffensive exterior. I think it's a really 
interesting casting. I mean, I will definitely watch the movie. I also think it is pretty good casting because there's this line earlier in the book. You said the character's hungry. And it made me think of this line early in the book where she talks about being ravenous for love when her mom is Mm -hmm. dying. And she wants her mom to tell her she was the best daughter ever. And that kind of appetite is something that I have associated with Reese Witherspoon in her movies before. And I think it's because of Tracy Flick. But Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen it in other roles she's played, too. And I feel like I like the idea of her digging in to a part like this. Like, Mm -hmm. I like her, and I like the idea of her and not only digging into it, but being functionally responsible for this movie, right? She optioned it. She made this shit happen. This movie is happening because of her. And that, I think, is also something that that is very appropriate to a lot of the messages of this book. All right, so overall, we would all, we all recommend, yes, with reservations or with no reservations. Yeah, yeah. I recommend with the suggestion that you should maybe just skip the sex scene. (laughs) Uh, They do it. It's great. He's really good in bed. They do it all night. It's awesome. I say say skip the shooting of the horse scene. I think you can skip that. Man. You got to read it. But uh, what you should do is you should read the entire thing while getting a foot bath and a pedicure. Yes. And just luxuriate in the fact that you're not on the Pacific Crest. Can I just say like that is a really important point we didn't talk about. What? Which is... Like a reason for this book's success, right? And I think that, like, so I read most of this drinking martinis and wine (laughs) and eating vast quantities of cheese and, like, just being, like, my usual, like, sedentary houseplant self. And I think that there is, like, the fantasy, like, this book is huge among women because I think it's a kind of life and a kind of bravery, a physical bravery that is as, like, fantastical as, like, Fifty Shades of Grey, you know? Like, there's something amazing about it. I read a lot of this book on the train up from... Washington to New York. And after reading a little bit of it, I actually upgraded from the regional to the Acela because I wanted just that little bit extra comfort while I read Wild. Although it was a little bit of a danger for me, just how incredibly radical her physical exertion was, because I started thinking, is this entire healing narrative just like rationalization for all the suffering Mm. that you underwent? Like, is this real or is this just your brain is reeling? Like, how could I possibly do this to myself? This is batshit (laughs) crazy. So I don't know. I do actually have doubts about whether this is actual transcendence that she's achieved or just like crazy rationalization. I think it's sort of both. Like if when you survive, it's obviously a, an unbelievably f- nearly unbearable physical experience. So when you survive something like that, it becomes a defining moment in your life. And by the fact that it's now 20 years later and she has kids and has a life and is a, is the writer she wanted to be, I think it becomes the thing that transformed her into that, whether it actually was in her real life or not. Yeah, but then how lovely is that fairy tale ending also? Yeah. Right? Right. So. All right. Well, thank you very much, Parl. Thank you very much, Katie, for joining me for this discussion of Wild. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is The Magician's Land, the third and final volume in Lev Grossman's fantasy trilogy, The Magicians. Read it and join us for our discussion on November 7th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateABC. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes store and hey, leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. This episode of the Audio Book Club was brought to you by The Great Courses. For Katie Waldman and Parl Segel, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.